You're listening to the Gems of Africa podcast, a project funded by Bowling Green State University's Center for Undergraduate Research Fall 2021 grant. The Gems of Africa site and podcast serve to create a link between the past and the present. It is our goal to investigate the past of pre-slavery African nations in order to establish an understanding of the influence of the African diaspora on the modern-day United States and provide a critique of systemic erasure of African contributions and its effect on education. I'm Lauren Degener, recipient of the grant, student at BGSU, and creator of the accompanying Gems of Africa website. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the involved individuals and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. In today's episode, we will be discussing the lasting influence of the African diaspora on modern United States medicinal techniques and pharmacopoeia. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of techniques and pharmacopoeia, it's important to establish a bit of background regarding what today is known as traditional medicine. These traditional methods of medicine are often referred to as folk medicine, comprised of vodin, fa, and plant rituals. These methods are also often based on the usage of plant, animal, and mineral products, which are included in the pharmacopoeia that we'll discuss later. Vodin, often referred to today as voodoo, focuses on healing through the beliefs in ancestral and spiritual beings, which were often combined with the physical usages of naturally occurring materials, so again, plants, animals, minerals. These practices, which were informed by the formation of voting groups from Benin and Togo, uh, with a strong influence from the Yoruba peoples, made their way to the Americas via the slave trade and are still associated with Louisiana. Fa is significantly less familiar and relates to divination through the usages of palm kernels in southern and central Benin. Despite the spiritual connections of Fa and Vodin to the process of healing, the African peoples also had a remarkable understanding of medicinal practices and the body. Uh, beginning with techniques, I'd like to indicate this is not just regarding the manner in which they treated ailments, but also how they worked to prevent them. A notable instance of this was the usage of fires near homes, uh, which enslaved Africans continued in order to deter insects which could carry disease. Moreover, the practice of frequently washing their hands, bathing, and teeth cleaning predated Europeans, and despite recommending these things to Europeans, the ideas were not taken seriously until European medical theorists repeated them. Uh, prevention techniques were not just specific to hygiene, but also included an understanding of community health. This came into play with the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia in 1793. In the face of the outbreak, the enslaved Africans informed by their knowledge of illness, uh, created a system of caring for the sick and disposing of the dead in a way that managed to reduce the spread. In Liberia, the Mano peoples devised of a quarantining system for smallpox and formulated a specialized diet for treatment, while also discovering a form of inoculation that predated the Jenner method. Uh, Their method included using the pus from an infected individual as a manner of building immunization within a non-infected person. Given the prevention methods, let's then shift to techniques of treatment. In understanding the lasting impacts, one must give some consideration to the Egyptian influences. The techniques employed by the Egyptians have been recorded and better preserved than most other records, records as is indicated by the 10 remaining papyri, I want to say papyrus, but it's plural, papyri, from the Egyptian origins. Uh, most records were orally transmitted, and the physicians were instructed in the per ankh or house of life which functioned as a university, library, medical school, clinic, temple, and seminary. So we can see how important um, health was to the Egyptians, especially through these 
um, houses of life per angst. The current methods of examination are similar to the early Egyptian ones in which a physical description, recording of ailments, inspection of feces and urine, as well as a measurement of pulse, the cough test, and abdominal per percussion were used. Medical providers in Egypt possessed an extensive knowledge of anatomy and physio physiology, which predated Harvey's understanding of the circulatory system. Uh, they also had names for the brain and the covering of the brain and the spinal cord with a comprehension of the nervous system and movements. Due to, due to their understandings of the circulatory and nervous systems, the Egyptians were able to develop a really early comprehension of neurological ailments such as deafness, incontinence, and priapism. Neurological treatments uh, included the usage of trephination to relieve chronic headaches and epilepsy, and this functioned as a predecessor to neurosurgery. So obviously our methods now are more sophisticated, but the, they had the knowledge then to make those strides. While the records of other Egyptian regions are sparse, um, we do have some understanding from European missionary records. Keeping this in mind when coupled with the view that the individuals held towards African traditional medical practices, much of the traditional knowledge was disrupted or lost. There wasn't very much value placed on the um, understandings that African culture had of the human body and of medical practices. So, of course, European missionaries didn't record them, um, which means we don't have a lot of access to them today. What is known today is still very, very, very valuable, though. Similar to the modern United States, women typically were in charge of obstetrics, pediatric care, and everyday ailments, while men were typically put in charge of surgery, diagnostics, bone setting, and therapy. The African peoples also engaged in treatment through drawing blood by cupping and leaching, scarifying, sweating, purgation, and the administration of herbal medicines. Uh, in surgical practices, a Nigerian man was known to have repaired an intestinal tract with a calabash covering, sutured the skin back together, and sent the patient off, and the patient went on to live and return to his road gang. In the Congo, a surgeon used stiff elephant hairs to remove a bullet in the same fashion that tweezers might have been employed to extract a foreign embedded object, such as a splinter. So that's really remarkable, especially considering the knowledge we have of um, their culture is very sparse, and also the fact that we've commonly been taught that enslaved Africans were not that intelligent. Obviously, they were. It's just that knowledge was lost. Moving into understanding the pharmacopoeia, we first have to understand what the term is itself. So pharmacopoeia is the collection or stock of drugs, which in this case is more specifically the remedies that were employed by African healers. We're actually going to get into a couple of them, how they were used, and how they are still employed today. So allopharynx, uh, also known as bitter aloe or cape aloe, hails from South Africa and Lesotho and is known for its laxative effect, which has been known to purge the stomach of toxins while also having a number of other uses. Uh, the medicinal agents within allopharynx include anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, antiviral, and anti-tumor, which has made the plant especially important to treating non-communicable diseases. Throughout Africa, the Memoria charantia, also known as the bitter melon, has been made into tonics, which work at, uh, as a hypoglycemic agent to help regulate, regulate diabetes. In the northern region, uh, Artemisia herba alba aso, also known as wormwood or desert wormwood, has been used as medicine for quite some time. In Morocco and Tunisia, wormwood actually served as another treatment for diabetes, as well as to mitigate stomach disorders. 
So we're obviously seeing a lot of really sophisticated thought processes and uses for these naturally occurring um, pieces of pharmacopoeia. So to finish, I, I would like to actually key in on Catharanthus roseus, otherwise known as Madagascar periwinkle. So when I was researching, Madagascar periwinkle actually has a ton of uses, but it's being explored today for its treatment of Hodgkin's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, as well as breast, uterine, and cervical cancer. So we're looking for a cure for cancer, and something that is seen seems to be a part of traditional medicine is actually being investigated. The interesting thing about this root is that it actually is comprised of anti-cancer alkaloids, um, vincristine and vinblastine, which are impossible to be synthesized within the laboratory. The traditional uses of Madagascar periwinkle included a treatment for rheumatism, skin ailments, and venereal diseases. So we see a lot of that knowledge that was considered traditional and backwards coming forward and potentially fixing some of our biggest diseases today. Um, so I just, I, I'm clearly very excited about the subject. And I think that if you are interested as well, looking into some of those um, ones that I listed and other ones would be worth a lot of that time and effort. Thank you for joining me today and I hope you learned something. Tune in for our next episode to learn about the systemic erasure and the relevance of this project to critical race theory. For additional information, feel free to visit our website, which is linked on our homepage.